The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see you tonight. Before I go on to the talk on effort, continuing our discussion and talks on effort, I thought I'd just check and see if people have any uh, questions about the uh, practice instructions tonight. And, uh, I guess in somewhat of an artificial way, I divided the sit into two parts. It's nice to get really clear about what we can do with the mind. Not that you always have to do that, but it just like understanding there's different ways to work with the mind. There's different ways to train the mind in a meditation period. And in this particular style of practice, the idea is that we get a sense of a whole spectrum of different ways to train or work with the mind. And it's like, uh, you know, like it or not, we're self-reliant. We have to figure out what's useful for us. And of course, you can do that by listening to talks, by talking to teachers, sharing what's going on, getting some feedback. But ultimately, you know, no one's going to be watching over you. And uh, and you have to sort of get a sense intuitively what how you want to practice with your mind. None there. Uh, there's that white file cabinet next to the uh, window. And the bottom drawer, there should be two uh, batteries there. Thanks, Matt. So are there any questions about the instructions tonight? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think they're there. And actually, it's working now, but it just looks like it might run out in the middle of the talk. So I thought I'd. Oh, good. Thanks, Bonnie. Mm -hmm. Monica. Yeah, and uh, generally, uh, you know, the mind is only as workable as it happens to be on a given night or given morning, and there's really not much we can do about it. And, and the Buddha divided the basic instructions up. Thanks, Matt. Um, in a way that works for us, because uh, when our mind is in a in a more gross place, then we work on one level. So, the grossest level to work with the mind in terms of the basic instructions I gave at the beginning. So whether we're working generally with the sensations of the body or sounds, or specifically with the sensations of the breath, the first part of efforting is to just remember the object that you've chosen to pay attention to. And then you forget. And then you remember to remember, so to speak. Oh yeah, I'm sitting here, I'm meditating. And oh yeah, I'm meditating on the breath. And then you redirect the attention to the breath. Or if you're working with your body, then you redirect your attention to whatever is predominant in the experience of the body or hearing or whatever the object you're working with, the, the metta, the loving kindness phrases. But there's this basic commitment to remember 
and then when you remember, to return the attention. So it's that's the effort. And the way we return, we're not rushing back to the breath. We can do that with uh, composure and gentleness. But when we re- when we remember or when we recognize that we're not with the breath and we remember that that's what we chose to do, then we make the effort. No matter how interesting the thoughts are, we bring the attention back. And that's a, that's a, a strengthening of the mind because it's not easy to do. What's easy to do is let the mind do what it wants to do. So there's work involved. So the initial part of the work involved is bringing the attention back to the object, to the chosen anchor for the attention. Then the second part, like when that's when we're not having a, a bad day or a bad set, you know, quote unquote bad set, where the mind is not easily remembering to stay with the object, it forgets, and then we have to bring it back, and then it forgets, and we bring it back. And that's really good work when the mind is in a gross place. And we should just be very happy to be doing that work. But when the mind isn't in such a gross place, and we bring it back, and then it's there for a while, then while it's there, while there's some continuity of attention with the breath, we're going to begin to notice something. It's like we're going to notice when the mind begins to get distracted but hasn't, that the pleasantness of the mind state falls apart as we're starting to get distracted. And as the wholeness and fullness of the attention with the breath, let's say, gets established, reestablishes itself, we're going to notice the wholesome qualities getting strengthened, like more calm, more inner happiness, more buoyancy or energy in the mind. And so now, with the second level of efforting, we're playing with cause and effect, basically, and we're using cause and effect to shape, to, to support the arising of a really beautiful mind state, which we call samadhi. You know, the not such a good translation for it is a concentrated mind. But, you know, you know, burglars can have a concentrated mind. So concentration, the way we normally use it, isn't quite sufficient to the word samadhi, because it really points to a beautiful state of mind where there's a lot of energy, but the energy is very subtle. So it's really bright. There's lots of energy, but there's no agenda to the energy. So it's just like there, just like a beaming heart, mind, fully present, alive, enlivened, and, and malleable or, or uh, workable, like willing to see and understand whatever presents itself in the moment. And so the question is how to work with the mind, work with the qualities in the mind to develop the, a more and more beautiful state of mind and body. So it, it actually there's a sense of that beauty filling the space of the body and mind, or filling the space of the present moment, where the whole moment begins to feel quite beautiful and and healing and good. So we're, we're learning how to do that, and we're learning when it starts to fall apart, like how that happens, so we don't make the mistake. Because often, you know, we get distracted, but we have no idea how we got distracted. You know, we realize three, four, or five minutes into the distraction that we've been obsessing about work or about a particular relationship. But we don't understand the mechanics of this and then the mind getting identified and that leading to more proliferation and before we know it, completely lost in obsessive neurotic thinking. So 
we're learning how the beautiful heart mind comes to be and how a neurotic, contracted, constricted mind heart comes to be. That's the second part of the efforting. And we're learning how to participate skillfully, nimbly, in the support of a wholesome, beautiful mind coming to be and avoiding and abandoning the mind going into its neurotic and obsessive tendencies. So that's the second kind of stage of efforting. And then the third stage, even more subtle, is when kind of more profound letting go. So here, the effort, the work we're doing is to remember to let go, to remember to let the mind be. So we're not trying to make a beautiful mind at this stage. We're, we're just, it's more, it's kind of a profound uh, refuge in just knowing. And that's hard because in that middle stage, we're getting really good at the subtle doing. You know, instead of gross doing where I'm thinking about my future or thinking about my past, which is completely agitating for the mind, we're sort of realizing, well, in the context of meditation, there is some efforting that's useful. You know, the sort of supporting the development and maintenance of wholesome states of mind and the abandoning and preventing of unwholesome states of mind. But then at this third stage, even that's too gross of work. We want to abandon trying to maintain wholesome states, trying to abandon unwholesome states. And there's a more radical acceptance and, uh, and appreciation that unwholesome states will end on their own without me manifesting as somebody who's going to fix it, even in a subtle, skillful way. So we're just sort of letting the natural flow of the mind be. And there's a kind of happiness or peace that arises in that work that's more refined than the happiness of even a concentrated mind. So there's the, the point here is that the effort we make in our sit depends on the particular qualities of the mind. If our mind's really refined, then our effort has to be very refined. If we use gross effort when the mind's really refined, the, the effort is going to actually disturb the mind. Or if we use, try to use, the mind's really gross and we try to use subtle effort, like just radical acceptance when the mind is really gross. Well, we're just going to, radical acceptance when the mind is gross means we're just going to keep uh, spinning in our neurotic habits you know, worrying and planning and all that. So we need a grosser effort to match the particular quality of the mind, where the mind's at in that moment. So, you know, it sounds like your mind was in a gross state. So all you need to remember is, as much as you can, you know, being completely forgiving when you don't remember, but when you do remember, like, and then there's somewhere with, okay, now what am I supposed to do? Then all you need to remember is return to the chosen object. And so a classic chosen object is feeling the breath, either here at the nostrils, here in terms of the movement of the abdominal wall. For a few, a smaller percentage, you know, it's somewhere else. But those are the two general places people find easy to be with the breathing process. I just keep returning. Bring the attention right here. Try to generate some authentic interest in the touching sensation as it goes in and out or the feeling of movement as the belly expands and contracts. And try not just to connect, not just to land there with the sensations, but to sustain the interest over time.
And that's that's the first step. And to be willing to begin again, to do that same thing over and over again, even if the mind is getting distracted every few seconds. So we would do that. You know, if you could do the math, that would be probably thousands of times in a 35-minute sit like we did tonight. But that would be really good work to have returned that many times. It would have made a real... Uh, it would have rewired the mind in a positive way to do that work. Because basically we're saying in a very skillful way we're unwiring or, or weakening the habit to go to follow neurotic habits, you know, into planning things that don't need to be planned, worrying about things that don't need to be worried about, wondering about things that don't need to be wondered about. But it's just the habit of the mind to proliferate the spin. Thanks, Monica. Any other questions about the instructions tonight and the sit or the experience of sit? Yeah. And what's your name? Christina. Christina. It's a good question. If you didn't hear, I forgot, Monica? Christina. Christina. Oh, sorry, Monica. <laughs> um, if you didn't hear Christina, she was just saying that she noticed when she was breathing that the pain in her back drew the attention there. And the, the question is just how to work with that. And there, you know, you have different options. And it, it partly depends on what you've decided, the kind of training you want to do. So in a more open attention, like we did at the last part of the sit, you wouldn't hold to the breath. You would just allow the attention to naturally go to what's predominant, in this case, the painful sensations in the back. But then your relationship to the painful sensations would be that that would be your object of meditation now. And you would practice allowing the sensations to manifest in the space of the mind without any restriction, as much as you can. So being undefended, not trying to control, not trying to manage or to explain to yourself why there are sensations like this or what they mean, but just to let the energy of the sensations move. That's the idea. So that they're unrestricted, unconstricted, just moving. And that already that's quite a relief because when we have strong, painful sensations, a lot of the suffering is our resistance to the painful sensation. So there's the aching and then there's the not liking the aching. And uh, the not liking the aching is itself painful and stressful and actually oftentimes much more painful and stressful than the actual painful sensations in the back. But sometimes, you know, we take up a particular training like 
we are we're making the intention to be quite devoted to the breathing process as a primary anchor and to only leave that as an anchor when it's stressful to be with the breath meaning that the mind it's not a refuge it's actually the strength of the pain in the back is so strong that it demands our attention basically it would be unskillful not to let the attention go there so then go there but there's the pain can be quite strong before you have to go there and especially if your concentration is good if your concentration is real good you can have a lot of distraction whether it's external like someone dancing in the room or our pain in the body and still be able to stay with the primary anchor but that's when the concentration is real good when the concentration isn't good that's obviously not so easy and you know how it is even even something as simple as being uh, absorbed in a novel you know sometimes you can be so absorbed in the novel someone can come into the room and you don't even notice that they're there you know and other times you know you can't even focus on the novel and you're just noticing everything else so it just depends on your concentration so we don't want to immediately go to the pain we want to test well can I by not by pushing the pain away but by generating wholesome interest in the experience of breathing in the present moment experience of breathing can I allow the painful sensations of the back to retreat into the background not by pushing them into the background but by bringing the sensations of the breath right into the foreground and getting interested connecting sustaining attention then the whole world will generally fall into the background and it and it's almost like it diminishes it doesn't mean that the pain is less painful it just means by not paying attention to it it's not so big and this is a this is a, a deep insight in practice we realize that any particular object like the painful sensations in your back it isn't the same thing what it is is dependent on how much attention and the kind of attention that we bring to it like if we totally focus on the painful sensations well they get huge they literally become the universe when we're fully focused on them and when we're fully focused on something else they literally disappear I mean there are people who can concentrate on objects and have surgery done on them because their concentration is so strong that their attention is such that it's suppressed all the other experiences they're there but there's no conscious attention to those other sensations or those other experiences that are happening this is not unusual I mean and it's it's like a party trick it's not necessarily going to lead to liberation or to happiness but some people have this uh, it's like a talent to focus the mind and exclude other experiences in doing that you know and you know certain athletes and artists and other people you know they just uh, they tend to sort of have uh, some of this talent to have exclusive attention so in terms of what you can do well you just want to decide like what uh, how you're practicing in that sit and generally the way that I teach when I'm teaching a crowd of people who are all in different places some people here have been practicing for more than 20 years some people are relatively new the general way that I teach uh, is that you use the breath as a predominant object but that you let your attention go when it's there's a strong distraction and you do your best 
to practice with it as a meditation object, even though it might be pain, even though it might be a, a, an exciting emotion or a disturbing emotion, or even joy, a wholesome quality in the mind. But if that's predominant, then you let that be your object. And you practice giving it space to do its thing, knowing that it will arise and last for a while and pass away. So you might want to just practice that way. You're with the breath, but when the pain in the back gets to some point, you consciously let go of the breath as a predominant object or as an anchor. And you say yes to the pain in the back. And you get interested in the pain in the back. And you try to tease out the aversion to the pain in the back and see if you can be open to the painful sensations without being averse to them. Yes, you have permission to be here. In fact, I'm going to practice being with these painful sensations as if they're never going to go away. So I'm not going to be mindful in order to make them go away, although that might happen. They may disappear or the pain may diminish quite a bit in your opening to them and allowing them to be. Or they might not. It may get more intense. It just depends. And of course, not when you're sitting, but before you sit, after you sit, it's fine to reflect on more pragmatic matters like why do I have painful sensations in the back? Am I new to sitting? You know, am I not used to sitting this way? Well, then maybe it's just a matter of sitting more consistently and those muscles getting stronger and more used to the posture. You know, or maybe you need to take up yoga or some other sort of mindful exercise that will loosen and strengthen the muscles in that part of the body. So we don't want to, you know, or sit in a chair or whatever you need to do, basically. Because if we're getting too much pain in practice, you know, if we don't have enough concentration and confidence in mindfulness, the pain is going to keep interrupting us and we're going to, we're going to feel like a failure and we're going to give up and stop doing it. So it's really important to do what you can to find a sitting posture where you can handle the unpleasantness of it. If your sitting posture is too unpleasant, you know, you should try some different things. And this is a time when it would be, it could be good to meet with a teacher to talk about your particular situation so that uh, there's enough pleasantness in your experience that you're actually able to bring wholesome states of mind to predominant experience. If all you're doing is relating with aversion, you're reinforcing aversion. <laughs> and you know, we don't need to reinforce aversion because we have a lot of irritation and judgment and patience already. Thanks, Christina. Any other thoughts about practice? About the sit tonight? So go on and, and take a few minutes to share a little bit more about effort and probably after the holidays I'll come back to this for one more week. Uh, next week we'll have a visiting teacher. I'll be out of town uh, visiting my mother-in-law and uh, Shoshana Alexander from Spirit Rock Meditation Center will be here speaking about happiness. Um, she's recently co-written a book with James Perez, one of the founders of Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California on awakening joy. That's coming out, I think, in January, or maybe it's already out, but it's soon to be out. And so Shoshana will be speaking um, next Wednesday night. So uh, last week I briefly introduced the four exertions. And the way to think about this particular list or model in Buddhism is I mentioned last week and the previous week that 
as we're living our life, as we're just meditating and in general paying more attention in life, we begin to have this insight. And this isn't a one-time illumination where we kind of get it, but just sort of a growing recognition or insight that how the mind is relating in any given moment makes a big difference. And that the primary cause for happiness or stress is not what's happening to us, you know, which is what we normally conventionally think. That's what the Buddha would say. An ignorant person thinks that their happiness and unhappiness depends on what's happening to them, like whether it's cold today or not, whether somebody smiles at me or not. And what the practice reveals, mindfulness reveals, is that how we're relating to the experience is the most important cause for stress or happiness. So with this growing, deepening insight, something shifts. We get really interested in how the mind is relating. I mean, mostly what we're really interested in is getting things that we think make us happy and getting rid of things that make us unhappy. But as this insight begins to develop in our lives, then we're still interested in getting the things we think will make us happy. and getting. But there's this sort of creeping, developing wisdom that's beginning to discern, well, how am I relating in this moment? How is how I'm relating contributing to stress in the mind or to happiness in the mind? And this has a lot to do then with how we make effort. Because that's, that's the topic recently is like, uh, you know, I, as I mentioned many times since I began this, this general theme of effort or energy, human beings have no problem making effort. We're, I mean, all we have to do is look around and see how many things have been built, how many families have been raised. I mean, human beings are born to make effort. It's just that a lot of the effort we make creates suffering, leads to suffering. So with this deepening insight, we begin to get why all of our efforts haven't led to lasting happiness. I mean, we've made so much effort in our life, but you know, a lot of us aren't that much happier than we used to be. So what's the point of life if we're not getting happy? So we should be getting better at being happy. You know, that, that, that would be the idea of continuing this life, that we're actually learning how to be happy and that our happiness isn't so much dependent on whether we're young or old in a rich country with wealth, I mean, with uh, money and uh, for food and shelter or living in poverty where food and shelter is less predictable. But uh, doesn't that seem so obvious? Well, no, I couldn't be happy if this happened to me. We just assume that. And then it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling thing, that when that isn't there, we do feel unhappy. So we be, we, once we start having this, uh, this insight, then we feel inspired to channel our effort in this direction, to notice how the mind is relating. And the Buddha describes this in four ways. Now, these are overlapping ways. You don't really do one without doing the other three. But it's a very convenient way, a map, really, 
to understand how to channel our energy. Once we have some confidence or faith that the most important thing in any moment is how this mind, this heart, is relating to the experience. More than the experience itself, more than what I'm seeing or hearing or thinking, is how I relate to that, how I understand that experience. And so the Buddha suggests we make effort to abandon and prevent from arising unwholesome states, qualities that lead to stress and constriction and suffering. I mean, it's totally commonsensical. And to develop and maintain qualities of mind, ways of relating that lead to release and happiness and lightness and love, you know, beautiful and wholesome states of mind. So, you know, normally we think, okay, I'll be happy when I get the world around me just right. So we try to fix our partners and our friends and our bodies and our rooms and our jobs, and we're trying to make the world perfect, like a little utopia. And it just depends on our vision. You know, if we have a broad vision, then the whole world has to be perfect before we'll be happy. And if we have a narrow vision, we're just happy if we've got this, you know, if our desk is neat, you know, and nobody calls me, <laughs> then I'm happy. But whether we have a very narrow vision or wide vision, we're totally at uh, subject to change because someone can put a bunch of work on her desk or somebody might call us or the world all of a sudden has peace and then there's a war starting somewhere or the economy goes to hell or something like that. So instead of like uh, taking responsibility for something we can't control like the world, we realize what we should be take responsibility for is this the inner ecology of the mind. This we can do something about. How the mind is relating in this present moment, this is something we can begin to shape. And it's just the beginning. This is moving into the second stage of practice that I mentioned uh, from Monica's question, where we're learning how to shape the mind in a skillful way. And the Buddha says, well, the way you shape that is you understand that how I'm relating right now can prevent unwholesome states from arising. And I can abandon, how I relate right now can help in abandoning states of mind, qualities of mind that are already there, established in the mind, that aren't doing any good, that are just agitating the mind. For example, you know, if you're sitting next to somebody uh, who you're uncomfortable with, you know, you think it's, this person's creepy or somebody, something like that. And then, well, if you keep thinking about that person, you're going to keep getting creeped out. So assuming that you've decided that you're not going to leave, then, then, that, uh, then it doesn't do any good to keep thinking how creepy that person is. You know, you're, you might as well leave, basically. But you can, you can train the mind not to perseverate, to proliferate around that creepy person next to you. And you can put your attention somewhere else. And there's all kinds of skillful ways to abandon 
unskillful qualities of mind, unskillful objects of mind. I mean, one of the most, if you want to suffer, one of the easiest ways to suffer is find an object of your experience that's unwholesome, meaning that it triggers unwholesome qualities like aversion, fear, and pay attention to it. (laughs) Pay attention to it without wisdom. So you're just sort of getting close to it and then getting the reaction you get when you get close to that object, when you think about it or actually physically get close to it. So a lot of times, like the classic way of abandoning might be you leave the room, you know, if somebody is bothering you. But in terms of meditation practice, we don't actually leave the room. We practice learning that we can do something with the mind. because. Even though we might be able to leave the room, there will be times that difficult experience arises that we won't be able to walk away from it. So let's practice now. Same with the pain that Christina mentioned. You know, the reason why we don't want to immediately move the body when we have pain in it is because there will be times when we'll have painful experiences where we won't be able to snap our fingers and make it go away by stretching out the body or whatever. So let's work with it as long as we're not harming the body with by not moving, then let's just see, well, how can I relate? How can I be in this moment and not suffer, given that there there are painful sensations? So it's a matter of abandoning unwholesome qualities, preventing unwholesome qualities, developing wholesome qualities, and maintaining wholesome qualities. Right? Just so simple. So what wholesome qualities can I develop? Well, One thing you could develop is compassion for the pain. I care about this pain. Well, that's a wholesome quality. And then you can maintain it. Or you could put your attention with the breath and develop, if you have developed over the years a lot of uh, concentration with the breath, then you might be able to pay attention to the breath in a way that really allows the pain to go in the background and the reactivity to the pain to completely disappear so that it's actually not a problem at all. (coughs) Or you might have enough confidence that there may be painful sensations, but that they don't belong to anybody, that you actually investigate the pain. And in opening to the pain and being more and more accepting and undefended with the pain, all that's left is intense sensations, but there's no problem. And this is an actual experience that's available to everybody. Pain is only a problem when we're constructing as somebody who doesn't like it. Now, I know that sounds pretty radical, but explore this first with simple pains, not the most intense pains in your life. Little pains, like an itch. You see, I'm itching right now. Now, I could have, in the context of a sit for sure, I could have noticed the itch in my leg and not scratched it. And then really welcomed it in. So I let go of everything else in the world and I let the sensations of itchiness become the predominant anchor for my attention. And so my whole world then becomes the itch and the impulse to scratch. And the more I pay attention to the itch, the more the impulse to scratch falls into the background until there's just the sensations of itch. There's not even a person who knows the sensations of itchiness because That's a different object. That's a different happening. And when the mind becomes fully open to the sensations themselves, 
there, in a sense, is no space in the mind for there to be a sense of a person knowing the sensations. And when that person, when that idea of a somebody having this experience disappears and there's just the sensations, there's no problem. Itchiness is not a problem in that moment. Now, in the next moment, if the mind reconstructs a sense of a somebody who doesn't like the itchiness, then all of a sudden there's a problem again. And so in practice, with simple things like a little itch, feeling a little cold, feeling a little warm, feeling a little achiness or a little stiffness in your shoulder, you can really do this. You can notice this going back and forth from feeling liberated, the sensations aren't a problem for anybody, to I don't like this, this is a problem, when's this going to be over, to not being a problem, to it's a problem. And you really learn, and the confidence deepens that, how the mind relates makes all the difference in the world. If we're relating with a kind of fearlessness, a willingness to open to the sensations completely, wholeheartedly, undefendedly, then the problem can disappear. And then even when the concentration falls away and, and we don't have that full present with the dis difficult sensations, the wisdom remains. So even though the reactivity is getting triggered, like, oh, there's that pain in the back again. Oh, I don't like this pain in the back. All of that reactivity, that construction of a somebody who's impatient with the pain and doesn't like it, it's more porous. It doesn't seem quite as real. We, the mind isn't so gripped in that story. And you know how that is. Like things that would really push your buttons 10 years ago, now they, they, you kind of go through the motions, but it's just not such a heavy trip as it used to be in your life. You know that experience? So this can be developed to the nth degree, where things, it's almost like our patterns of aversion, our patterns of desiring, are just shadows of their former selves. They're there because of the ancient momentum to react in these particular ways that we've been conditioned to react. But it, they just don't have the punch or the weight that they used to. Like we've talked about, you know, our reactions to politicians sometimes. And, and, and like we, as you develop this practice, you know, like today I, I checked and the whole thing about health care and the politicians doing their dance and all that sort of deceit and, you know, all that stuff that goes on when laws are being made or not being made. You know, it can turn my stomach. And, but I just hold it a lot more lightly. You know, it's not like my perception has changed. If anything, I feel like I have more clarity about the process of, of governance in this country and probably lots, most places. I probably have more clarity, but I hold it more lightly. It doesn't weigh down my heart in the way that it would otherwise. And uh, I just feel more free to respond to life and to kind of interact with life without having a lot of hatred or aversion or disgust, which doesn't really help. You know, it kind of feeds the whole uh, problem when one group reacts to another group, which, which allows this group to justify, you know, reacting to this group, you know, and then things get polarized. When things get polarized, we can justify all kinds of evil acts, like taking advantage of people 
you know, because we feel like they're trying to take advantage of us. You know, the rich people feel like the poor people are trying to take the money that they got through hard work, you know. And the poor people think, you know, well, the rich people got that by cheating or by, you know, no skill or no whatever of their own. And so they, we put each other in boxes, and then we feel justified to take things that aren't ours or to screw people who we can screw because we have power, and on and on like this. And then, you know, nothing really good comes of that. So the basic mechanism for channeling our effort into abandoning and preventing unwholesome states and developing and maintaining wholesome states is very simple. It's just wise attention. This term in Buddhism is yoniso manisakara. Manisakara means like wise consideration. So we're wisely considering the mind. It's not just knowing the mind, like a moment of mindfulness. It's mindfulness plus the wisdom that's able to discern, are these qualities in my mind leading to stress and constriction? Are these qualities of my mind leading to liberation, to a release and an openness, a freedom, a nimbleness of mind? So we're wisely considering what's in the mind, what's being triggered or what's arising in the mind. And if it's wholesome, then we're strengthening it. In a sense, we're feeding it by noticing its wholesomeness. So when you're feeling really patient or loving or clear, if you pay attention to it and discern that it's wholesome, discerning that it's wholesome means you're noticing its liberating effect. And that will actually strengthen the wholesome state. When you notice, when you bring wise attention, wise reflecting consideration of unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome qualities, you're, you're, noti- you're not just noticing that there's aversion in the mind, you're noticing that the aversion is destructive, that it's leading to weight and constriction. And that will naturally lead to the abandoning and the preventing of it. So that's all we have to remember, to wisely consider what's in the mind, how the mind's relating, to discern the skillfulness or the unskillfulness of the different qualities, impulses that are in the mind. It will naturally strengthen what's wholesome, develop and strengthen what's wholesome, and naturally prevent and abandon what's unwholesome. And you want to see the naturalness of it, because if not, the path is going to feel like a huge burden for you. Like, i got to clean up this mind? Well, forget it. It's just too much. But what we discover is that the cleaning up, the purification of mind, is impersonal. It happens naturally when we do one thing, which is invest in wisdom mindfulness. Not just knowing the mind or heart, but knowing it with some continuity so we're really seeing how it works, how unskillful habits or qualities gum up the mind, gum up the heart, how wholesome qualities liberate, open up, release the heart. The more we see that, that's all we have to do. We have to get interested in the mind, and we have to discern the skillfulness and unskillfulness. Everything else takes care of itself. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people. Some of you ancient practitioners who have done this practice for a while might want to share how this has worked in your own practice. That would be nice to hear. And also any questions for people who are newer to practice about the talk tonight? What comes to mind? Yeah, first Dill. 
this may sound like uh, some green hairs, uh, but I kind of heard you say something that triggered something in my mind, and that is you were talking about the itching sensation on pain and how we relate to it. But itching, when we focus on it, it's, it's something that's happening. And we also called it the meditation object. You know, the into an object of meditation. And then we also refer to the, the constructed self who's feeling the pain. And that's a different object, but it's a different happening. Mm-hmm. So we are referring to same thing as a happening and also as an object. So I think there's a subtlety there because the objectification is sort of unconscious in the way that um, it appears to be some sort of a solid, impenetrable thing. but happening is something altogether different. But it depends on how we're relating. So when we're relating in a gross way, things appear to be objects. And as the attention refines, then experience is more of a happening, a process. So the process, the experience of life or experience as a process, is an insight that only arises when the qualities of mind are balanced and we're not confused by the what you call the objectification of experience. So yeah, what you said sounded exactly right to me. The only thing I wanted to say here is that when we refer to meditation objects and the process of objectification, those are two very different things. But a meditation object, like when we use the breath as a meditation object, of course, the breath, the experience of the breath isn't as an object, but it's a word that it's a place to start. Oh, yeah, the breath. It's a concept now. You know, we have the breath as an object. And then as we start opening, practicing with the breath, then it changes from an object to a process. And then even that process is seen to be empty, ultimately. So it's another way of talking about the three levels of practice. Initially, we're just trying to remember the object, really. We're just trying to remember the concept. Oh, yeah, I'm doing breath meditation. I need to return to the object of breath. When when that's going through our mind, though, we don't know the process of breathing. All we know is that we're remembering a concept, the objectification of the breath. And then, you know, we're working with the breath, and then we're realizing that when I really kind of cultivate wholesome qualities that allow the breath to be a process, things really start to loosen up in a good way. And when I'm more in the sort of object of the breath, the mind is tighter, the experience is more unpleasant, you know. So that's the place of getting skilled, like really learning to trust the process. And the more we trust the process, the more we start having the deeper insight that the whole process itself is empty. There's no thingness to the process. 
and that sort of really, and when that's sort of taken back to the sense of self, then uh, nibbana, the sort of experience of uh, emptiness, opens up, and the resulting freedom in that. So yeah, I, I think what you're pointing to is important to to be clear about. Yeah, it's a good thing to clarify. Yeah, Kevin. But in your sit the next day, and the content and the qualities of mind that were reinforced in that 30-minute or two-hour <laughs> stint on the internet, you know, then the next day when you're sitting, whatever you set in motion there, it's going to still be reverberating, you know, and it's going to be it becomes our character, so it's going to arise in our sit. Now then, when it arises in our sit, then there's more of a sense of noticing what has been set in motion and whether that seeing whether or not that's something we're interested in cultivating so even right then we can begin because right then we can just regurgitate what we read the day before right you know how that is it's like we can we don't need the internet because we can just rethink what we've already know about this person or that situation and are we going to let ourselves do that? And if we do let ourselves start revisiting that politician who did that, then are we going to notice what that does to the mind? Or are we going to get lost in the content? And you know, part of it just is, are we the kind of person that has to suffer a whole lot before we get interested in looking at why this is happening, how this is happening? Or can we refine that so even in the beginning stages of the mind getting gummed up or getting weighed down, it's sort of, it's like a red flag. And I think this is really how we assess the development of our practice, is how deeply do we need to go into suffering before it occurs to us that, is there another way? You know, how long are we obsessing before we, it occurs to the mind, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this skillful to be obsessing about this or to be relating in this way? Because no sane person does that consciously. We do it because we're not conscious. So the more we emphasize consciousness, just that kind of 
their attention to what's going on, the harder it is to do things that are destructive. So this is what we want to emphasize. So when you're there on the internet, don't try to stop yourself from being on the internet. Just say, this is what I say to myself at least, you can do whatever you want, Mark, but all I ask is that you feel the effects of what you're doing. Notice, is this really what you want to be doing? So don't do things blindly, but constantly be assessing, is this, am I cultivating the experience of the heart that I want to cultivate? Is this what I want? So ask yourself that. Is this what I want? Because what I'm doing, how I'm relating now, reading Huffington Post, this is what I'm setting in motion for the future. So if I'm here with aversion, or more and more lust, with Huffington Post, I've noticed. <laughs> I may have, anyway, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> it's a liberal blog, but they have more and more racy pictures. I don't know if anybody goes to this website. But so it's sort of a, a interesting. But uh, you know, what kind of qualities of my mind are being reinforced being here? And is this what I want to create? Because we're literally creating our world by what we reinforce. And so to kind of ask these provocative questions, both in our sits and in our daily life, and to realize we're not helpless. You know, we can make other choices. But it, we have to be patient, you know, because our habits have a lot of momentum. And so we have to appreciate small turning. Like tonight, you're here, Kevin. You're not at home reading Huffington Post, you know. And that's, a, you know, that's good. And we, we have to feel the joy of the fact that we've gathered here today, tonight like this. And, you know, this is good. We're cultivating wholesome, wholesome states here, I think. Mm -hmm. I don't know your name. I'm Lance. Lance, nice to meet you. I was just going to say, I definitely relate. And I shared the same experience with politics until I realized I just needed to abandon my obsession with reading newspapers. And I stopped watching Still to this day, I don't, but I needed to do that and walk away from it for a while in order to walk back to it in a calm, collective mind to be able to see it for what it is. And I guess before, when you were talking about sitting next to a crazy person, um, using that analogy kind of reminded me of how I feel about uh, ghosts and people's fear of ghosts. Yeah, I think it's a conversation that comes up a lot when you're talking with someone about it. If you are still afraid of ghosts, or you consider the fact that ghosts could be real, just having a conversation about someone else's experience with ghosts can trigger a lot of fear yeah. in you. And I realized that when I was a child, yeah, I would be afraid of ghosts in the dark. So I would run upstairs. That went on and on and on. And conversations about ghosts always creeped me out. Until one day I realized, you know what, I'm in the basement, the lights are off. I can't see anything. It's dark. And then I had that realization, like, I'm just staying. There's nothing here. I'm afraid of nothing. So from that day on, I was no longer afraid of ghosts. And from that day on, I started to lose my belief in ghosts. And then when people started talking about ghosts, I realized that I wasn't, that fear wasn't being triggered, yeah. you know, around that conversation.
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Lance. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just nice to kind of have these pragmatic or simple examples of it, how the practice works. Yeah, and we have to leave it here because it's after nine. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.